today's message. Um, I would like the opportunity to share with you, and I relish the opportunity to share with you, my story of how I came to know the Lord, and then uh, tie it into a a well-known Bible story. Sometimes these well-known Bible stories have gems for us that we miss because familiarity breeds apathy, especially when it comes to the Word of God. And, And may we never... May it never be said of us that we become apathetic to the Word of God. But in our honest moments, I think we all can admit that there are times when that happens. So the goal here is to rediscover some of the gold of the Scriptures. Before we do that, I'd like to open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to be here with us today. We ask that you would open your Word to us. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that we would leave here changed people, not the same as when we came in. We thank you for the opportunity to both proclaim and hear the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well I want to start with a couple verses in the book of Jeremiah. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. And these verses, along with several others, have become very meaningful to me as I deal with uh, my disability and all the things that go along with it. Uh, And this is what God said to Jeremiah, and he really said a similar thing to me as he called me to preach later in life. But this is what he says to Jeremiah. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest, Forth out of the womb I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet to the nations. Then he said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I shall command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Now, we don't know how old Jeremiah was. Perhaps he actually was a child, maybe as young as his young teens. But perhaps he was just saying, in comparison to the task, Lord, I'm a little child. If you remember, King Solomon said something similar. God came to King Solomon in a dream at night and said, Solomon, what is it that you desire from me? Do you desire wisdom or fame or riches? And Solomon wisely said this. He said, You have placed me over this great nation of Israel, and I am but a little child, knowing not how to come in or to go out. Please give me wisdom that I may lead your people effectively. And what did God say? God said, Okay, Solomon, since you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom, but in addition, I'm going to give you fame and riches. And of course, Solomon had fame to the point that Jesus said himself, when he's talking about God clothing the fields, that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. So Solomon's fame lasted for years. Jesus was referring to it even though it happened thousands of years before the people that Jesus was talking to were around. So God certainly answered Solomon's prayer and then some. And of course, there are many lessons we can learn from his life as well. But that is just the point to say that 
both Solomon and Jeremiah were in similar positions. When God came to them with great responsibility, they said, we're children. We can't do it. And I'm here to tell you that that is the best thing they could have said. Because the very first thing you need to do before God can use you is get out of the way and say, I can't do it. Because then God can come in and He can work through you to do amazing things. God says in in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So my my first question for you is, are you letting God work in you? This is a question that I needed to ask myself. To give you a little bit of background, I was born into a Christian home in May of 1979. There's nothing wrong with being born in May. As a matter of fact, I enjoy it. When I was a kid, I liked the fact that my birthday was was basically halfway through the year. So every six months, I got presents. You know, I got presents for my birthday, and six months later, presents for Christmas, and then six months after that, presents for my birthday again. Not to mention the fact that I was born on Memorial Day weekend, so every four years they throw parades in my honor, and that's a great thing. (laughs) However, I was born three months early. See, I wasn't supposed to arrive on the scene until August 11th of 1979. My parents were actually on vacation in Jackson, Michigan, um, and uh, they were sitting in church, and my mom wasn't feeling well, and of course she wasn't expecting me. So she didn't realize that she was in labor. Fortunately, the pastor's wife of the church was very gracious to her and realized what was going on despite the fact that they weren't ready. And at the age of 19 and 21, my parents were faced with a major crisis. My dad tells the story that after I was born, he walked around the campus of that hospital And he begged God for my life. And I don't know if my life was extremely in danger, but I do know this, that God answered his prayer. I was born at 11.22 a.m. on Sunday morning, during Sunday morning worship. I like to say that that's part of the reason why I became a preacher. Because that's my busiest time, is at the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning. I know that God had a plan. Unfortunately for me, as I was growing up, I didn't always embrace that plan. Shortly before my fifth birthday, I made the decision to follow Christ. I know to the depths of my soul that that was the best decision I could make. But I didn't wake up the next day with all the answers. Matter of fact, when I woke up the next day, I still needed a wheelchair. I still couldn't walk and run with the other kids. And I struggled for the next nine years asking God, why if you have this eternal destination for me, why is my temporary destination so stinky? I said, God, I've been told all my life that you don't make mistakes, but you must have made one somewhere because I want to serve you so bad, but I can't. And I struggled back and forth and I argued with God. And this, this was not an everyday occurrence, I wouldn't say. I had my good days. But I did a lot of arguing with God and said, God, why did you make me this way? 
I'm reminded of what the prophet said, and I don't remember the exact reverence, but he said, Shall the potter say, Shall the pot say to him that formed it, Shall the pot say to the potter, Why have you formed me? That's my paraphrase, but it's in there. But this is where I was. Fast forward to July 16th, 1992. The worst day of my life. It would have started out like any other summer morning. My mom put my three-month-old baby brother down for a nap after feeding him. He was number eight in our family. We had a big family. I was, I'm the oldest of 12. And I've always enjoyed having a big family. Hope to have children of my own someday. Probably not that many. But uh, she put him down for a nap after feeding him. And she was pretty busy that morning, as she always was. But she sent my brothers in one at a time to check on him. And they always said, he's sleeping. He's fine. And it's quite possible that most of the times they checked, he was. But it was very odd that by 1.30 in the afternoon, he had not woken up for an afternoon feeding or cried for a diaper change. So she went in, and he was gone. My dad likes to say that while he was sleeping, an angel came and said, John, it's time to go. Jesus wants you. From that point on, for the next several days, life moved in slow motion. It was like somebody touched the VCR of my life and pushed the big pause button, and even when life wasn't paused, it was moving slow. I can remember my mom carrying him down the stairs and grabbing the phone and calling 911 and saying, screaming into the phone, I think my baby's dead. I can remember the ambulance getting there and how they tried to breathe life back into my baby brother. And I can remember crying out to God and begging Him for my brother's life. And I can remember my parents coming home from the hospital that day and saying, God had a better plan and He took John home. And I can remember in the days that followed, crying in my mother's arms and saying, why did God take my healthy baby brother and leave me here when I'm completely useless? I just wanted to die. I didn't want to live anymore. I, didn't, I wanted to go to heaven. And I thought, I'll be honest, there were times during that time when I thought I should just go out to the road and drive in front of a car. But I thank God that I didn't have the courage do it knowing him I probably would have hurt myself badly but not perished but God worked with me over the next year and he began to tug at the hardness of my heart and when I was 14 about a year later I went to a conference about the 10 things you can't change about yourself and one of those things is the way God made you and at that point God reached down into my life and he said, Andrew, I don't need to change the outside of you. I just need to change the inside. I need you to let me work. And from then on, I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ and I asked him to show me how to share him with as many people as I could. 
Am I 100% faithful? No. But he is. And in 2009, he led me to start speaking for him and to begin traveling the country, sharing him with others. I'm no one special. I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where I found bread. But I wanted to share with you the story of Gideon because I have been where Gideon was. If we could look at Judges chapter 6, starting out, Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, Judges is, is an interesting book to me because as much as the children of Israel told Joshua, you know, we're going to obey everything that you said, whatever you command us, we will do. And in Judges chapter 1, it says that, that all the days of Joshua and all the days of the people that served with Joshua, the elders that served with Joshua, they followed the Lord. But when, when Joshua's elders died, there arose a generation that knew not God nor His works, and they followed after idols. Do you realize it will only take one generation for our people to forget God? And I don't know where we're at as a church as a whole, but as a, as a country, we are in that generation. We have forgotten God. God said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. He also said, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is an offense to any people. And that is why we as a nation are in the place where we are right now, because we have forgotten God and we have decided that what is evil is good and what is good is evil. And I'm not going to win a lot of friends with my message. But I'm not here to win friends. I'm here to win souls for Jesus Christ. In Judges chapter 6 verse 11, we meet a man named Gideon. He seems like the last person that God would call to do his work. But that's what I love about God. God loves to use useless people. And my dad doesn't like it when I use that term. And I suppose there could be a little bit better term to use. But I love that term because without God, what does Jesus say? He says, without me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say you can do some things. He says you can do nothing. So let's see what happens to Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, verse 11, it says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was an Oprah, that pertained to Joash the Abysrelite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. See, this is not the guy that I would call if I had a big battle to be fought. When I'm thinking about a warrior, I'm thinking about someone dressed in armor, He's well-trained, he's skilled, he's ready to go into battle. But God had other plans. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of? saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now hath the Lord forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked on him and said, Go in this thy might, (coughs) 
and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Who else does this sound like? Think about this. Joseph, in the Old Testament, was the 11th of 12 brothers. David was the youngest of his brothers, so young, in fact, that he wasn't even called when Jesse said, we're going to have a feast and we're going to anoint a king. Because God's economy is different from man's economy. As a matter of fact, what Samuel said that day is very appropriate to this story too. The Lord looks on the, or the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We need to ask God to see the heart, for eyes to see the hearts of men. And then I love the way. Uh, I love the way he says, the Lord is with thee, mighty man of valor. You realize Gideon hadn't done anything valorous at this point. He's threshing wheat in a wine press because he doesn't want the Midianites to find it and take it away. Earlier in the chapter it said that they had taken everything of the Israelites. They had commandeered all their resources and everything that the Israelites were allowed to do were only because the Midianites allowed them to. So this is the situation that God comes to Gideon in. And I want to encourage you that God doesn't look at you based on what you've done or who you are now. He looks at you on the basis of who you can be with the power of His Holy Spirit. And perhaps today... He's calling you to a work and you're resisting because you say, I'm not equipped. Let me tell you this. God does not call the equipped. He equips the call. This is a lesson that I had to learn and this is a lesson that we all need to learn as we take our battle stations in the army of the Lord. For make no mistake, folks, we are at war. I used to hear people say that when I was a kid and I used to to think of it and kind of laugh it off, you know, it's not real. But we are. There's no longer a moral standard in our society. And anyone that brings up a moral standard, a definite moral truth, is considered prudish and hateful. Jesus said, do not be afraid if people hate you. For they hated me before they hated you. And before Jesus came on the scene, they stoned the prophets. So, Gideon's next step, and I'm so glad God meets us where we are, because he could have chosen to just get really upset with Gideon when Gideon had this whole thing. And, but his next, Gideon's next step was to ask God if he would pass a test. Now, this is risky. I don't necessarily recommend it, but the Bible doesn't tell us that he was wrong and God was gracious enough 
to go along with what Gideon asked. In Judges 6 verse 36, we read about this test. In Judges 6.36, Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry on the earth beside, then I shall know that thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose early on the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Now at this point, Gideon had already said, I will know that you want me to leave me. But he wanted to be doubly sure. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on the ground. I love this because it shows me that God is willing to meet us where we are. He met Gideon where he was. He answered his doubts, but he didn't leave Gideon there. He said, I still have a task for you to do. I still want you to go and do it. I can think of similar things like Moses. Moses was like, I'm just standing in the desert taking care of sheep, and God, uh, you should send somebody else to rescue the, the children of Israel out of the hands of Egypt. And God said, no, Moses. I'm choosing you. And the same thing with Gideon. He's like, Gideon, I'm choosing you. And you're not going to make me change my mind. See, this is something that I needed to understand. Was I needed to understand that God wasn't going to change his mind about his call on my life. And he wasn't going to let a little stupid thing like a wheelchair stop me from doing what he called me to do. He gave me a message to preach and he told me to preach it. And every argument that I had, he already had the answers before that argument came out of my mouth. So if I could give you one major piece of advice, it's save your breath. Listen to God. I spent nine years fighting him. You don't have to waste that kind of time. Do what he calls you to do. Now sometimes that means to bloom where you're planted and wait for the next step. And not be so worried about what's going on in Timbuktu when he's given you an audience here in West Michigan. An audience here at Camp Michigan. Everyday opportunities to share his work. One of my favorite stories in this regard is when I used to work downtown Grand Rapids at uh, Guiding Light Mission. I was sitting at the bus station waiting to take the bus to work. And uh, these two gentlemen came in and they had thick foreign accents and they saw me reading my Bible and they sat down and started talking to me. And I said, well, where are you from? And they said, well, we just came into the United States, I think this morning, that morning from Ethiopia. Now, I'm sitting here thinking, what are the odds that someone from Ethiopia is going to walk into the bus station in Grand Rapids? And I immediately sensed that this was a divine appointment. Now, I don't know what the end results were, but I proceeded to share with them from the book of Acts the story of the Ethiopian eunuch 
who Philip came and shared the truth from Isaiah 53 that the prophet was talking about Jesus Christ. And they told him about the Ethiopian eunuch who believed God and then said, What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized and it's said by tradition that he went back to his hometown and there was a great amount of Christians that came into the church because of that man's testimony. Because one man, Philip, was in the right place at the right time and he was serving God in Samaria and God said, Philip, I want you to leave Samaria to go to this road to meet this eunuch so that he can know the power of the gospel. See, that's the way God works. All right, so God passed Gideon's test. It sounds weird to even say that. But God passes Gideon's test. And so the next step is for Gideon to put together his army. Let's look at Judges chapter 7, verses 2 to 7. And the Lord appeared unto Gideon, the Lord appeared unto Gideon. The people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Often God will give you a calling and He'll make it impossible for you to do it, so that when you do, He gets the credit. He told a barren woman that she would be the mother of great nations. He told Abraham, you're going to have a son, and that son, the seed of that son is going to bless all nations. Why? Because out of him, Abraham, came the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ. And if he can use a barren woman, years after childbearing, he can certainly use you and me to do his bidding. But as we continue, he says... Now therefore, go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart from the mountain Gilead. And there return of the people, twenty and two thousand, and there remain ten thousand. Now we read in this passage, if you read more of it, you'll see that the Midianites, it says they were without number. It doesn't give a number. It just says they were like the grasshoppers in the hill. And so 32,000 might not have been quite enough, but it's a pretty sizable number. But God says it's too many because if they win, they'll say, look how great we are. We won. So then 22,000 are fearful. They turn their backs. They leave. And 10,000 are remaining. Now, I bet if you're anything like me, you're like, well, 10,000 is still a pretty good army. But God's not done yet. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of them whom I say unto thee, These shall go with me, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I shall say unto thee, These shall not go with me, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth. Shall thou set by himself, likewise everyone that boweth upon the knees to drink. And the number of them that lappeth, putting their hand to the mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. 
And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. And let all the other people go, every man to his place. I don't know about you, but if I were Gideon, I'd be like, okay, okay God, can we have a conversation here? Um, I know you said that you are going to deliver me. And 32,000 people, men came out and said they'd be willing to go. And you said that was too many. So I said whoever was afraid could leave. And uh, 22,000 left. And that left me with 10,000. And now 9,700 more have left. And you're going to give us the victory? How is that going to work? And we know that Gideon was still resistant because God said, if you are still afraid, go down into the camp and you will see uh, that they are anticipating your victory. And he goes down into the camp and he hears this story about this dream that one of the Midianites had about a barley loaf, a huge barley loaf that rolled into the camp and just took out all their tents. And Gideon was able to witness that and that was able to bolster his courage. So we looked at his call in Judges 6.11-17. We looked at his test in Judges 6.36-40. We looked at his army in Judges 7.2-7. So now let's look at his victory. Judges 7.16 says, And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pictures and lamp within the, lamps within the pictures. And he said unto them, Look, on me and do likewise and behold when I come to the outside of the camp it shall be that as, as I do so shall ye do when I blow the trumpet I and all that are with me then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of the camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon so Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came onto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch that had been new and they had newly set the watch, and they blew, uh, and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, "The sword of the Lord and of Gideon!" And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried. And fled. They had not raised a single sword at this point, but the people were fleeing. Why? Because God plus anyone is a majority. Now, I don't know how many Midianites they, they, they killed after they started fleeing because we're, we're told that, that the Israelites screwed up their courage after the Midianites were fleeing and they fled after them, so I'm sure they killed some of them. But the point is, the Midianites were fleeing from before Israel, before a sword was even raised, because that is the power of our God. And I think sometimes we forget that the God who was present in Judges is present today. The God who was present in Judges is the one who sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on Calvary's cross so that we could have salvation the God who did that was the God who said, I'm leaving, but I don't leave you comfortless. I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth 
so that you will not be without comfort. The God who is here in Judges says to us today, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. My question to you today is, are you trusting in the one that overcame the world? See, he's not asking you to overcome the world. He's saying, I overcame the world. And just as, as he worked in Gideon's life, so he can work in our lives as well. I just want to bring you up to date on today. I told you a little bit about my ministry before we, be, we began, but um, the basics again are I, I go into different churches um, throughout Michigan. I like to go to more places and, and make this ministry nationwide and even possibly take trips overseas as God opens the doors. Um, my goal is for this to uh, be a full-time thing in the Lord's will. I believe that he's called me to preach. I believe that um, he's opening doors. And uh, also, I'm not opposed to having another job, but there haven't been a lot of doors open to me in having a second or a vocation to supplement my calling, which is something I'm still open to, but he just hasn't opened that door. Um, But I got this opportunity because I worked with Maria Johnson for five years at the Potter's House Christian School, volunteering as a discipleship leader. I go into the Kent County Jail once a month with my dad and a couple brothers and a couple other guys from our church. I've been doing that for 15 years. Um, I was able um, to be on Company Corner on Children's Bible Hour with Uncle Charlie back when I was 15 years old. And I've done a lot of other ministry things. Been very blessed with how God has opened doors. And I am praying even now that he will broaden that, that in his will he will lead um, me to <clears throat> the woman that he has for me to be a helpmeet in this ministry and also in this life, that um, as we marry in the future, Lord willing, whoever she is, that we could be an example of Christ and his church because if there's anything that is more under fire today than families and marriage, I don't know what is. We need solid examples because we've lost our way in this area. And sadly, I see many Christian uh, marriages dissolving as well because we, we forget what marriage is about. We think, well, marriage is for me so that I can be happy. No, it's not. Marriage is to be an example to the world of how Christ loves his church. God tells husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And you know, if husbands got that verse right, the rest of the passage would fall into place. Because we have a lot of discussion and rigmarole about how submission is an antiquated idea. We banter and go back and forth about what Paul meant when he said, Wives, submit unto your own husbands in everything as unto the Lord. But I think it's because husbands aren't loving their wives as Christ also loved the church. Because if they were, submission wouldn't be that difficult. 
Now, is it, is it easy? No, because we're human and we do wrong things. That's why the passage starts out that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. I realize that may seem like a rabbit trail, but it's not because my biggest passion in ministry is to see the family restored. Because if we have strong families, then we have strong communities. If we have strong communities, we'll have a strong state. If we have a strong state, we'll have a strong country. And if we have a strong country, then America can once again, by God's grace, be a shining city on a hill, as Ronald Reagan once said. And I believe that. Some people say, well, just preach the gospel. Don't worry about the culture around you. Well, I'm here to say God wants us to impact the culture around us. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, um, teaching everyone, you know, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And often we stop there, but that's only the second, first half. The second half is teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have told you. We, 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 we major on the first half of the Great Commission and we drop the second half. Like it's unimportant. And it's not. God gave us an opportunity to live in a democratic republic where we can set up our leaders, both local, state, and federal. I often tell people, you know, maybe you don't think that this stuff matters, but if you want to go live in a dictatorship, there's a lot of other places you can go live. I don't want to get too far off the rails, but these are things that are very important to me, and I hope that you will think about them and realize the spirit in which they are delivered. I just want to close today with two different short passages that detail um, what is my life driving force today. First one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Throughout my life, I've had a couple different people come up to me and they are well-meaning and I love them. But they've said to me, if you have enough faith, you can get out of this wheelchair. If you really believe God, then He would heal you. I just have one question for those people. Have you ever gone to a funeral? My friends... Death is a part of life. Infirmities are a part of life, not because God wants them to be, but because sin is a part of life. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, death came upon all men. And my disability is is a part of that. But here's what God said to Paul about his thorn in the flesh. We often forget this. I never understand how these people that think I could be healed if I just wanted it bad enough rationalize this passage. It says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And he says it twice, so it's an important thing to say. For this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And listen to the words here in this last verse, or this last part, because it's so important. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice he doesn't say that 
I'm, God's going to take away my infirmities. No, he's saying, my infirmities are still here. I wake up every day on this earthly life and have the realization that I am still in a wheelchair. And some days are harder than others, let me tell you. I have the choice when I wake up and I'm waiting for someone to get me out of bed to either be better or bitter. And when I was a young teen, my choice often was bitter. And nowadays I praise God that the majority of days, not all of them, but the majority of days, I can say better. I want more from this life. A lot of times when I go in for different appointments associated with my disability or to get my chair fixed because it broke again, people don't expect it, you know, because they don't... Ex- I asked somebody, I said, well, not this chair, because this chair's been pretty good, but the chair I had before this, it was always breaking. And I said, why is it always breaking? Why am I always back in here? You guys should just build me an apartment on the repair shop because then I will always be here when you need to repair it. And I said, well, why is it always breaking? He said, they don't expect you to go anywhere or do anything. They just expect you to sit around in your chair and be content to be at home doing nothing. And that gives me an opportunity to say, my God has bigger plans for me than that. So I've learned to glory in my infirmities that the power of God may rest upon me. Do I still like it? No. Do I wish that someday... That, that some days that it would be different? Yes. I've watched six younger siblings get married before me and have children. And I love being an uncle. But I still greatly desire to be a dad. And it's been hard to watch all these younger siblings get married before me. It was hard to watch them all get driver's licenses. My youngest sister, who's 15, is now driving. So everybody is driving. Except me. I'm not able to. But you know what? It gives me an opportunity to get to know my brother better when he drives me or another friend who drives me on these speaking engagements. My brother and another friend from my church took me to Tennessee and that was a long trip. But we got to know each other better. I still remember one time when I was at a camp. I worked at a camp for five years, Brooke Kareth, in Pearson, Michigan. One of the years, I think it was the second year I was working, three days before I went, my chair broke down. And I'm like, I'm supposed to go to camp, be a counselor, and help these kids. And my chair breaks down. I ended up having to be pushed around by other staff for the three and a half weeks I was there. But you know what? I learned an important lesson that summer that it is just as important to learn to be served as it is to serve. God had to humble me again and let me know through so many gracious people that it was a privilege for them to serve me and we have I have close relationships with several people I met that summer because of that so even though I wrestled a lot the first couple weeks I learned some valuable lessons about God's ultimate plan was it fun? did I enjoy it? no but God worked out his plan and his ways are higher than our ways. Okay, one final passage and then I'll close. This passage is my life verse. It's Philippians 1, 20 and 21 and the story behind it is that I went to see Dave Dravecki when I was 14 years old 
Many of you may not know who he was, but he was a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants in the 80s. And on August 10, 1989, he made a miraculous comeback after losing his deltoid muscle to cancer. Many people told him he couldn't come back. Most people that lose their deltoid muscle can't hardly move their arm, let alone pitch in the major leagues, but he, but he came back. He came back and he pitched, I believe, a really good game that day. And maybe one other start after that. And a week later, he was pitching in Montreal. And he went to pitch and his arm snapped. And he's like, no big deal, I'll rehab the arm and get back. But sadly, when they looked at the break, they found more cancer. And he had to get his arm amputated, which meant that as much as he hated it, he had to retire from baseball. Anyway, I was a big fan of his because of his story. So my dad took me to a banquet and heard him speak. And afterwards, he took me into the autograph line to meet him and get my stuff autographed. He autographed both my books and my baseball card. In each one, he put a different verse. And this one, when I turned to it, I knew that I wanted it to be my life verse. And it says this, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, Paul understood what real life was. Paul understood what it was like to live in a win-win situation. He was basically saying, if you let me live, then I'm going to keep proclaiming Christ. And we see in Philippians that by the end of the day, or by the end of the book, some of Caesar's household, perhaps even the guards that were chained to him, we're getting preached at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it says, the saints of Caesar's household greet you. Can you imagine what that, what, what that must have been like for Caesar to realize? I don't know if he ever did, but if he did realize that some of his own household had come to know Jesus Christ. Because Paul didn't stop preaching because he was in a dingy prison. But then he said, if you kill me, I'm going to gain Christ. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, I'm ready to go. My life is ready to be poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. And God's going to give me the crown of life that he's going to give to me and not me only, but unto all those who love his appearing. So my question to you is, do you love his appearing? Maybe you're one of these who does not feel that what you've done is that impressive. Or what you've done is that important. And I just want to encourage you that God has a plan. He may not do with you what he's done for Gideon, but he has a wonderful plan for you. And I love the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, because in that movie, if you ever get a chance to watch it, I used to think everybody watched it, but I've learned that not everybody has been that privileged. But the man in that story, George Bailey, he realizes that even though his life seems normal and humdrum, 
that if he had not existed, many people would not have been affected positively. Now, it's not directly a Christian worldview movie, but we can apply it that way. That God has people that only you can touch. Plus, he has a different economy than us. One by one, Jesse's son stood before the prophet. Their father knew a king would soon be found. Well, each one passed, except the last. No one thought to call him, for surely he would never wear a crown. But when others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. Even though your life seems filled with ordinary things, in just one moment, He can touch you, and everything will change. When others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. One by one, problems come, dreams get shattered. And sometimes it's hard to understand. But things like chance and circumstance, they don't really matter. Our Father holds tomorrow in His hands. And when others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. Even though your life seems filled with ordinary things, in just one moment, He can touch you and everything will change. When others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. Well, He wasn't the oldest and He wasn't the strongest chosen of the day. Yet the giant fell and nations trembled when they stood in His way. And when others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. Even though your life seems filled with ordinary things, in just one moment, He can touch you, and everything will change. When others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. God may see a king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come here to learn your word. We pray that we would be changed. We thank you for stories like Gideon's. We thank you that you've given us all a story. Lord, I pray that you would be with everyone here, that you'd bless them, that you'd make your face shine upon them, and give them peace as they go from this place. We pray this in Jesus' name, and for his glory. Amen.